This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to another edition of The Bunker. I'm your host for today, Andrew Harrison. It's a cliche of conflict reporting to say that truth is the first casualty of war. But Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has seen something even more disturbing happen. Untruth, turbocharged by digital and social media and amplified by a receptive Western audience that's eager to believe anything as long as it contradicts the official narrative, has become a weapon of war. Disinformation has become a key part of Russia's arsenal. And since the invasion in February 2022, it has proliferated, often faster than debunkers can keep up. Only three weeks after the invasion, a crude deepfake video appeared on a Ukrainian news site, which appeared to show President Zelensky begging Ukrainians to lay down their arms. It was rapidly debunked, but the attempts have since become more sophisticated, and it's getting worse. An EU commission report in September found that social media companies had failed to stop large-scale Russian information campaigns since the invasion, and that the rise was being driven in particular by the dismantling of Twitter's safety standards. So how has Russia changed what it does since the war began? What does it want and how do democratic governments fight it? Here to explain is Ian Garner, a historian and an analyst of Russian culture and war propaganda. He's the author of Z Generation, Into the Heart of Russia's Fascist Youth, which is out now. Ian, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, especially to talk about these very big and very knotty questions. Yes, they are, aren't they? I mean, firstly, you know, Russian disinformation is especially shameless. It seems to exist across a web of media, everything from official government accounts to so-called independent journalists, all the way back to, you know, even shiny floor chat shows on Russian TV. They all work the same themes. They're kind of integrated and they're kind of terrifying. Has Russia written the book on how to do this? Well, in a sense... Yes, in recent years, they are the pioneers of this sort of postmodern whirlwind of, of multi-platform, multi-scalar, multiple truth realities, whether targeting people in the West with disinformation or whether targeting the Russian population itself. And the real innovation they've made, and they recognize this very early on in the 2000s, is understanding the importance of participation in that process. That the best propaganda is not just top-down vertical propaganda that's created and disseminated by the state. It's propaganda that people feel like they have a sense of sharing, creating, and, and almost there is a sense of community about this between ordinary people and between people and the state. So how has Russian disinformation changed since the invasion of Ukraine? You know, Russia used disinformation tactics to soften the ground even before the 2014 invasion. Well, yeah, I mean, they've, they've been doing this for a long, long time in Ukraine. And you can look back to, to the early 2000s. We can think about the, the Orange Revolution. You remember the, the election that was eventually won by Viktor Yushchenko, the, the reformer and, and more liberal-leaning, more anti-Russian candidate. The run-up to that election was highly problematic in terms of media freedom and media influence in terms of the way that Russia tried to sort of restructure reality. Now, that was before the days of, of social media, or at least 
social media as it existed was very much in its infancy back then. And they've only continued doing that. And now what we see is a war that is waged not just in terms of a hot kinetic war. It is not just a sort of repeat of an industrial war of the 20th century, even though it feels like that when we see the tanks and the jets and the you know, trench warfare, effectively. This is a war that is taking place on the information battlefield as well. So how would you characterise what they're doing now that the war is, you know, we're kind of 18 months into the Ukrainian war? When, when they began, it seemed to be a lot of sort of very straightforward, you know, relatively transparent fake news, deep fake videos. How, have they evolved what they've done as the, as the war has progressed and as, you know, very clearly they didn't get the, the instant blitzkrieg victory that they expected with Russian armour and they've kind of got bogged down. Well, you would always move the, the weight of what you do onto the perception of victory rather than victory itself. They're always striving to turn defeat into victory. This has been a reality of Russian military propaganda that's, that stretched back centuries. But in, in recent months, we've, we've seen them, well, firstly, struggle a lot in the early weeks of the war because they did not expect to be fighting a fast war. But they've repeatedly deployed a strategy that they've been using for years. And that is in response to unexpected events to create multiple conflicting realities very, very quickly after events. There is no sense of, you know, waiting to see what the objective truth might be. There is just creation of, of worlds and creation of truths and mistruths. And then usually they settle on one narrative. So we've seen them sort of move away more broadly from having a number of narratives. For example, the, the narrative about the war in Ukraine being a direct repeat of World War II has really disappeared from Russian propaganda. It's hinted at with the idea that Ukrainians are, are Nazis and fascists. But especially when we see targeting of the domestic population, that narrative has really been turned down because clearly it's not proven to be effective. The other thing that they've done is they've learned from the opposition. Ukraine has been so good on the digital battlefield, way better than anyone expected, way better than I'm guessing they really expected themselves to be with all the, the memes, the videos, the, the viral speeches. You remember those updates from Kiev that Zelensky was posting from his office as the bombs were coming in. You know, they were very effective. Now Russia is starting to do some of the same thing. It's a little bit slicker. It's a little bit more appealing. It's a little bit more modern than maybe some of the propaganda was a couple of three years ago. So they, they are learning. It sometimes feels like the Russian state is this great lumbering beast that responds very slowly. But it does respond. They do learn. They're doing it on the battlefield and they're doing it in the information war as well. There does seem to be a, a clear crossover between not just the production, but also the the organic spread and the enthusiasm uh, amongst the audience for both Ukraine war disinformation and COVID conspiracism and anti-vax and so on, which we have strong reason to believe that Russians were also involved in creating and spreading that kind of disinformation. What do we know about this? How active were the Russians on COVID and did it change their modus operandi? Did they learn from that? What they found in, in COVID is that their, their sort of transnational approach to propaganda and disinformation was almost too effective because it came back to bite them on the arse when nobody in Russia went to get vaccinated. 
right? And then they had to launch a sort of a media blitz to try and convince people to get to get vaccinated in sort of evening talk shows, right? So they they realized that it worked and almost worked too well. But what I want to draw attention to here is maybe this doesn't quite answer your question, but it's important to understand that there is this this idea of the sort of the fire hose of falsehood is a metaphor that some of your listeners might have heard. The idea that Russia simply blitzes the truth with these multiple narratives and hits you in the face so hard you don't know what to believe. You're just fragmented, you're shattered, you're traumatized, you give in, you stop believing in anything at all. That doesn't quite explain what really they're trying to do. What they are trying to do is, yes, begin by battering you down, but then lure you into communities, communities of shared beliefs, even if if those beliefs are not true. So you pick one of the mistruths, you pick one of the narratives, and what you'll find, whether it is disinformation about the Ukraine war or disinformation about vaccines, you will now find a transnational group of people. You'll find people in Canada, where I am, you'll find people in in Britain, where I'm pretty sure you are right now, Mm -hmm. you will find people in Russia who all share this sense of the world is against us. We have this hidden truth. We understand. And those people within that group are very supportive and welcoming of each other. And so having fragmented you, having traumatized you, they give you a way to sort of recreate yourself and create your identity but within these very fragmented bubbles that are much more easily controlled and that, of course, work against liberal interests about truth and narratives around human rights and so on and so forth. This is really interesting because the idea that... um you know, th- that these ideas are truly viral, that they can be set out into the world and will and will start to build their, or almost automatically build their own communities, kind of goes against the idea that a lot of us have about disinformation, which is, well, you know, it used to be a bunch of guys sitting in the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg pretending to be, you know, Dave 238 Chelsea FC on the Guardian message boards and astroturfing away. We will talk a bit more about the Internet Research Agency in a minute, but I wanted to ask you, is there is there anybody kind of in charge of disinformation within the Russian state? Is there at the core of it, you know, the Ministry of Contemporary Digital Disinformation? Or is it more of a culture that's something that is spread across multiple arms of the Russian state and just a, as a way of doing things? But the latter is more true. I, I think there is still a popular impression of a sort of Orwellian room somewhere filled with TV screens where some yes, Russian yes. dude is handing down, you know, here is the story that we're all going to spread. There is an element of this. This does happen to a certain extent. And, you know, in the past, everything has come from the Astankino Tower in Moscow, which is the big TV production center. But increasingly, what we find is there are all sorts of sort of freewheeling elements of the Russian propaganda apparatus so that we have a multi-layered approach to creating the truth. This is all taking place in an environment of such fast technological change, it's almost impossible to to keep up with it. I mean, since the beginning of the Ukraine, you know, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time, we had no chat GPT, we had no inkling of what mid-journey could do. Even those things have evolved since the second invasion in 2022. I wonder, could you tell us a little bit about whether the kind of disinformation effort is is almost led by technology or is it keeping up with it in the sense that now that we can do these astonishing things, now that a, a deep fake now is so much better than one made 18 months ago, are they 
using that? The answer is yes. And I am petrified by the way that the information environment will look for all of us in the coming years. And I, I see that there is very little being done about it, and there is almost very little that can be done about it. But the very, the very nature of truth and reality is about to be undermined in a way that, well, we ain't seen nothing yet. Let's put it that way. These are really scary mm. times. And as we see changes in the ownership of certain social media sites, we're in for a, a very rough ride. And Russia, China, other hostile nations will exploit that ruthlessly. One facet I've noticed is that the purpose of this sort of information is seldom to persuade the other side to change their mind. It's just to sow confusion, chaos and mistrust to make the target audience doubt any official source, any kind of sanction source. Why is doubt and mistrust more valuable to Russia than a straightforward change of heart? Well, I mean, partly, partly the doubt issue is important in the West because the Western system of government rests on shared values. The shared agreement that truth matters, objectivity matters, that reliable journalism matters, that our government representatives are elected fairly and that they will then represent us fairly and equitably. If you can undermine the belief, then what you have is a West that cannot support a nation like Ukraine. And we're seeing that today in the way that the extreme wing of the Republican Party, who absolutely are sowers of some of the most abhorrent disinformation, and I, I, you know, there is lots of speculation that some of them may be paid by Russia, maybe official agents of Russia. Now, I don't know, but they certainly function in that way in this system of disinformation. Now, when those people are undermining shared values around elections, around truth, around vaccines, now they turn their attention to Ukraine. Well, while we dawdle and argue about what is reality and what is not, and Russia is continuing to wage a real war. Well, I mean, connected to what you were saying earlier, the, uh, the, uh, the most useful form of asset is one that does not know they're an asset. Do you think we're seeing this with the American right, even in Congress, perhaps? Absolutely. I think there is an element where there are some really successful elements of disinformation that are spread very deeply into the political culture in the West, in particular narratives about NATO's supposed role in, in starting the war or, or somehow being to blame for, for Russia's invasion, which just doesn't make sense. And the problem we have is that Increasingly, we are going to see in this era of deep fakes and more convincing AI, more and more people fooled by disinformation. And it is incumbent on all of us to realise that we could very easily become the useful idiots. Is it possible to, you know, kind of develop a, a kind of sixth sense to realise when you're doing this, this stuff? Because how do you spot, because these things have produced a very sophisticated high standard, what should listeners be looking out for to make sure that they're not being turned unwittingly into that uh, that useful idiot? Well, firstly, the mainstream Western media is still absolutely the best reporting tool and the most accurate tool we have. Read the BBC, read the Guardian, read the Globe and Mail from Canada, read the New York Times, the Washington Post. Now, they're not always right, but they are more often right than they're wrong. 
and they strive to do fact checking that I, I know because I've published in this these outlets and it is very hard to actually write an article for them because everything has to be rigorously referenced and fact checked. But a lot of it comes down to fact checking on your own behalf and going out before you share that post, before you click like, before you comment, this is correct or this is incorrect. Doing the hard work of going and looking, has the BBC reported this? If not, maybe I should refrain from simply sharing it for the you know easy bars of getting some likes on, on Twitter or Reddit or wherever you are until I'm actually seeing other sources reporting this. I wanted to ask you specifically about Twitter uh, and how uh, it's the kind of effective hands-off deregulation by Musk has affected the spread of, of fake news, of, of general disinformation. Um, Twitter left the EU's code of practice. It seems to have uh, just effectively, you know, fired its entire compliance team and it's it's uh, you know everyone who worked for the company who was tasked with looking at disinformation. And as I said, the EU the EU report found that Twitter had become kind of a hot zone of disinformation, even more so than beforehand. What's been your experience? I mean, you're absolutely right that in the last few months, Twitter has become an increasing source of disinformation. There are multiple academic reports that are well-researched that proves that this is true. So it's, it's undoubtable and or undoubted. And certainly my own experience, just over the last few days with the Gaza conflict that is arising, is that I cannot look at Twitter and accurately ascertain what is real and what is fake anymore. And yeah. therefore, everything has to be sat yeah. on and waited out to see who is confirming this, who are the really accurate people who are on the ground, the people who are experts confirming or rejecting certain hypotheses. But it's it's become useless as a source of news updates, and instead it's become an angry sort of a discussion forum that is very, very heavily polarised. So in that sense, it, it echoes the, the splintering and fragmenting effects that the Russian state is seeking to recreate across Western society more broadly. Do you think there's any hope for Twitter while Musk is in charge? I mean, while Musk is in charge, no, unless he has a really big change of heart. It will have to take a change of ownership and a, and a move back to genuine content moderation. And let's not forget, Twitter was not perfect before Musk took over. It was far from perfect. So it is it's going to be a long road back from a, for a site like that. And I do wonder if the reliable sources of, of comment and news are actually going to want to come back to a reformed or a reforming Twitter. I mentioned the Internet Research Agency earlier, the, uh, the St. Petersburg locus of, of, of trolls, which many people have heard of. It was founded and run by the late Wagner boss and coup leader Yevgeny Prigozhin. What's happened to the Internet Research Agency since uh, Mr. Prigozhin's unfortunate demise? So as it, as it existed, it was pretty much dead. Um, the remnants of it are now occupied by, by the government very, very directly, and they're using other means to spread their messages. And it will be, it will be really interesting over the next few months and years to see the work that academics who are working in the sort of cyber research field actually do on what what became of the internet research agency and where the people that were involved have actually ended up because we don't quite know yet.
just to wrap up then, um, I suspect your answer to this is going to be no. Are democracies doing enough to combat these kind of relentless waves of, of disinformation? I mean, I, I use things like EU versus disinfo, which is very useful. Nobody has heard of it. It's a little tiny resource. Are our governments properly cognizant of, of, of the threat of this stuff and what needs to be done about it? No. <laughs> Let me expand. There is lots of money that is being put into fact-checking of various sources. Lots of money being put into traditional media to reach out to people on the other side of the divide. For example, BBC Russian service got a got a big boost, not directly from the government, but from the, the BBC's governance structure itself to do more work in Russia as the war broke out. And they are doing really good work. And Steve Rosenberg, who's the BBC's Russia correspondent, is really, really good. However, fact-checking cannot convince the people who are living in these alternative realities and the alternative communities, because they will knee-jerk, refuse to believe anything that comes from the BC, for example. They will knee-jerk, refuse to believe anything that goes counter to the narrative that their community has accepted, because that promises to undermine their own sense of refragmented selfhood and refragmented community. And they will see other members of the community saying, you know, the BBC is full of lies, don't believe anything it says, these people can't be trusted. Therefore, we have to move the focus away from pure fact-checking, which is always reactive, onto finding ways to rebuild and restructure those communities. And there are ways to do it, although it's very complex, so I won't explain in full, and offer those people a way in from the cold and say, we can find shared values once again. I want to push you on that because let's imagine that, uh, you know, a, a, a very expensive limousine pulls up outside where you are now and you are given a large budget and invited to take over the, uh, the counter disinformation effort on the basis of what you just told me. What would you do? What, what do you do to effectively combat it? Let me give you an example that I, I talk about in the conclusion to my, my Z Generation book about how we might reach out to, to young Russians who are becoming wrapped up in a very extreme world of nationalism. What we can do is we can chart identity pathways for individuals. And we can say, well, your sense of belonging comes from your sense, for example, of being Russian. There's step number one. If you're Russian, then you might also say to be Russian is to be an Orthodox Christian. Number two, it is to be straight. Number three, it is suddenly we find a violent turn. It is to be aggressive and to believe in war. What we have to do is find a way to say you could be Russian, you can be Orthodox, you can be straight, but it doesn't require you to be aggressive. And we know we can do that. Anthropologists, psychologists have researched how to do this. So we create social media campaigns giving, for example, images of young Russians who are all of the things that are positive and pretty close to what you like, even if to start with that seems like quite an extreme nationalist vision. But this extreme nationalist doesn't believe in violence. They, re they reject violence. So you take it tiny step by tiny step. You can't hope to just convince people overnight to switch every element of their identity. Or we might, for example, target the Orthodox Christianity and say that, you know, Russian Orthodox Christianity, here is a priest that is preaching about, you know, how important peace is and love thy neighbor. You know, maybe they've gone mm -hmm. to Ukraine and, and talked about that. Maybe they're just in their local church and talking about that. Then we disseminate that content mm -hmm. within Russia. So it's not lying, right? It's not a, a psyop in that sense, but it's 
It's very effective. It is cheap to do, much cheaper than waging hot war. And it just gives people the chance to rethink what they're doing. And we can do it in this highly structured and highly planned way. So if any billionaires are listening, then please get in touch. Ian Garnett, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us in the bunker. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Listeners, you should be aware that Ian's book, Z Generation, Into the Hearts of Russia's Fascist Youth, is absolutely fascinating. And it's a genuinely terrifying read uh, about how a generation of young Russians has willingly accepted Putin's apocalyptic ideals. There's a past edition of The Bunker where we talk about exactly that. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget The Bunker depends on your generous support to keep going. So please consider backing us on Patreon. There is also a link in the show notes. A mere £3 a month means you're supporting independent journalism. A little more and mugs and t-shirts can be yours too. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison. The producer was Chris Jones. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis, Group Editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>